Hey everyone, first off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Wandry peoples, past and present. Sovereignty has never been ceded, it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Emma Kulti and your Familiar Stranger for today. I am joined by Holly Walters and Margaret Shawinski. Today I'm speaking to Holly Walters, who is an anthropologist at Wesley College in Wesley, Massachusetts. I am also joined by Margaret Shawinski, who is an anthropologist and who has recently completed her PhD at Harvard University and is one of the plaintiffs in an ongoing lawsuit against Harvard University. Today, we are going to talk about Me Too Anthropology, or Me Too Anthro for short. We will be discussing violence and power in the field and in the academy. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's interview. So here it is, my interview with Holly and Margaret. Hi, Holly. Hi, Margaret. Thank you for joining me. How are you both? Hello. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you for joining me. Um, as a kickoff question, Holly, can you tell us a bit about the Me Too Anthro Collective? Sure. So the Me Too Anthro Collective, the core, I would say, was actually originally founded back in 2015. Um, and it was founded by three Australian uh, grad students at the time, uh, Hannah Gould, Esther Anderson, and Michael E. Maher. And they had originally sort of had this idea of forming some kind of association of graduate students. They weren't really sure at the time, but this association of graduate students that could do something having to do with the ways in which field workers kind of fell through the cracks, really. Uh, that they knew that there were a lot of resources for things like on-campus sexual assault and on-campus problems, but virtually nothing for anthropologists, sociologists, or, or anyone who works academically in the field to have any kind of safety net, really, particularly when it comes to sexual assault or sexual harassment. And the sort of long story short behind it is... I myself was also a survivor of sexual assault in the field when I was working in Nepal in 2016 and 2017. When I came back after that, I didn't tell anyone about it. And it wasn't, at the time, it wasn't because I didn't think my advisors would be sympathetic to what had happened. It was honestly because I didn't think there was anything they could do about it at all. And essentially I was right. Uh, the university that I went to had no particular type of resources for anything like that. There was nowhere to go. There was no one really to talk to. And so I started talking with other graduate students who were in my program. And we also began these conversations about, is there something we could do? Are there other graduate students that we could link up with? All very nebulous, chaotic, the way that a lot of activism starts, quite truthfully. And it was really just during a Google search that I was doing looking for anthropology, graduate students, sexual assault, sexual harassment, 
that I stumbled upon Esther's Me Too Anthro Collective website. Um, and so I sent them an email and was like, hey, this is what we're doing here in the United States, which is basically nothing. And I'm guessing basically nothing is happening where you live. Let's talk. And that was actually the start of it. That was the start of the formation of the core of what would become the Me Too Anthro Collective. They're sort of two main categories on the website. Um, the Long Journey Home seminar is kind of, is the big one. Like that, that's the big collective thing that we did first and foremost. Right. And that should be three files. It's a, it's a I student guide. I have looked at that one. Yeah. Yeah. I say that, that's sort of the big one. The, uh, um, the pl the action plan was the one that came out the most recently. That was the one that was in response to the on the site harassment that took place at the SAAs two yeah. years ago, um, where basically we started getting all of these emails from archaeologists who were at that conference saying, essentially, like, "Hey, is anyone from the Me Too Anthro Collective here? And if not," this is actually happening right now here as we're standing here what do we do the the SAAs which is the Society for American Archaeology um had accepted a paper panel that included an abuser and his victim and basically the survivor had contacted the SAAs and had said this man is my abuser we like we have an injunction against him. This, this isn't just, you know, I'm accusing him and everyone's going to call it hearsay. Like we have an actual injunction against him. He was convicted of sexual assault and sexual harassment prior to this. He is going to be at this conference. You have accepted his membership. You have accepted his paper. And I'm on that panel. Um, and she didn't know it until she got to the conference and basically shows up to the panel and there he is. So she, thankfully, I was gonna say, thankfully she knew about the Me Too Anthro Collective and basically went and found one of our members who was there at the conference and, and more or less said, I need someone who is safe, who can be with me, can you be with me? And, she, and our, our member said, yes, of course and contacted the rest of us and basically said, we need an action plan and we need one right now. Like I am standing here, this is the situation, what do we do? And it, it was a very strange experience of bringing together the Me Too Anthro Collective sort of both in place at the conference and all the rest of us virtually in that kind of emergency moment and all of us immediately sort of conferencing in on, on a video call and being like, okay, here's what we do next. And here's what we do next. And here's what we do next. Okay, what happened? Okay, here's what we do next. And the the worst part about it, uh, about it is that the we sent them to the SAA admin who was sort of running the conference like, we found them people who were actually there on site. Like it wasn't going to be good enough to like call some admin in New York and be like, Hey, we got a problem, but actually found the people on site 
to explain to them what was going on. And we were there in person and virtually. The admins were like, well, what do you expect us to do? Like threw their hands up in the air and like, well, we can't do anything about it. I and mean, so, the, like I said, the, not shocking to Margaret, I would imagine. And to sort of get to the end of that, what we ended up advising, what, what we ended up actually doing was, was staging a sit-in. Was that we, we spread the word through the SAAs, through the people who were actually attending the conference that this was going on. And that if they wanted to show solidarity with the survivor, that they were to go to a particular place, which a large number of people did, and basically staged a sit-in that they were not going to participate in the conference any longer until the abuser was removed. And so that's what that one is. That's basically like you're at an academic conference or you're in a classroom or you're out in field work and something goes wrong. What do you do? How, how do you respond? Like, that's also probably our most controversial one because it is a, an action plan. Like it does say, do this, then do this, then do this. And I think honestly, the biggest part of it was once the word got out, like once we were able to start communicating and we did this mostly via Twitter, <laughs> like we did the SAA tag and just started like, hey, everyone at the SAAs, listen up. It's Me Too Anthro Collective, here's what's going on. Here's what you need to do. And it spread and it went fast. Uh, but what came out of it was that conference document. Like that was sort of us going back and being like, okay, what did we do? What worked? What didn't work? What do we think should happen? And then that document is what actually came out of it. Um, did this scholar who was um, not the abuser, but the 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 victim, was, did she did she get feedback on it or describe what that process was like? for her or what it meant to her anything we did not press for that um yeah. i mean we know who it is um but in a large a large part of it and i totally understand this she wanted not to get famous for this yeah. um and and that's part of the reason why we did this collectively and the way that we did it was we were a little bit more bombastic than the me too anthro collective tends to be to get that attention on us so that it wasn't on her. Um, right. and, and we knew that because she did not want the attention on her as she was a graduate student, junior scholar, like this is gonna suddenly be my whole career and this is what I'm gonna be known for. Wow. And she didn't want that, which I completely understand. No, and you should be able to have the community stand up for you like that. It's actually a really beautiful, I look at that as like an act of care, right? It's a it's a restorative and healing act to gather around someone and sort of stand, actually physically stand against. Yeah. And, and in a lot of ways to be, if there's going to be any backlash, if there's going to be any media, like you know, if, if the, the admin of the SAA comes back and, and punishes somebody, it's going to be the Me Too Anthro Collective. And we were okay with that. Because if they're going to do that, there's a lot of us. So they're going to have to figure out how a multi-regional collective is going to do that. And we figured that was going to be a lot harder for them. What lawyers? We don't. Uh, we are not a legal organization. Oh, no. I was just wondering if 
and you anyone might ever come after you in some way but yeah no we we have no lawyers good for you <laughs> it's it's literally just a ragtag group of junior scholars and graduate students just pummeling our way through might be ragtag but you've got the you've got the trust of a lot of people like there are a lot of anthropologists who know and respect and trust and like if I was if I was at a conference I would know who are the me too anthro people that I could reach out to and that I would know that I would be safe around them um the Australian anthropology conference the annual one that took place last year was a bit of a uh it was a moment uh for us as a as a group of as a as the Australian anthropologists we had a, a changeover of our uh president I think that's her official title um Tanya King her um speech she gave as she kind of you know was accepted into this this new role was incredible it was so powerful and I just remember that the last part was you know talking specifically about um hooking up at conferences she was just you know she just led with that she was like really open she was like love sex love casual sex it's fantastic conferences are a great place for hooking up there is nothing wrong with that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that there are power relationships and dynamics at work when you put professors and PhD students and grad students and all of these people in a room, there are predators in this community and we know who you are and we are watching you. And we were just, me and 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 my colleague, we were just sitting there. We were just like, okay, so I'm in love. Are you in love? We're both in love. We're in love with this <laughs> yes. woman. This is incredible. And we were just like, but it was, it, this wasn't, you know, like, um, you know, a ragtag bunch of, you know, junior scholars kind of trying to like, you know, wriggle our room and you know you know make change this was this was the president of our you know anthropological Ooh. society like this is our group stating this in front of everyone at the annual conference this isn't in the hallways this isn't a private whispered conversation where it's like we know these things happen it's okay you know we'll protect you this is Ooh. this is in this was public and this was institutionalized and I was like for me that represented you know, the new generation of scholars, of the Me Too anthropologists going, you know, we're not putting up with this shit anymore. We're just not. It's you know. <laughs> Yeah, just just no. These, these stories are making me feel like anthropology might actually be a dis different <laughs> discipline than the one I've been encountering lately. Um, it's, it's good to remember that people are, like there's a lot of people in anthro who are ready, I think, to do things quite mm -hmm. differently. I mean, I, I definitely think our experience at the SAAs really was a great demonstration, at least to us as the collective, that sort of, you know, if you build it, they will come kind of a, a mentality that when the word went out, it was not a small response. Like it, it wasn't everyone, certainly, but it was not a small response. And it was enough of a major response that it got the SAA's attention that there, I don't think it actually went through, but there was serious talk about an SAA membership boycott for the fact that they did not respond adequately in terms of the conference. Like they responded eventually, but in a way where it's like this, this should not have been hard. Like that, this particular situation was not ambiguous. Like they, 
this should not have been difficult. I mean, no, it's a violation of her civil rights. You don't have to be in a room like that with your abuser. But yeah, no, I think you're, it's the AAA to me feels conservative. The American anthropological. It is. Yeah, it is. Maybe I can join the Australian one. (laughs) (laughs) It truly touches my heart. Like it, it does that I know from a lot of the conversations, back channel conversations that I've had that the Me Too Anthro Collective name has gained a certain amount of trust. And we take that very, very seriously in terms of when when people say things like, I saw what you did at the SAAs and I know that if something goes wrong for me at a conference, I'm looking for the Me Too Anthro Collective. And it's like, oh God, okay. Um, yeah, you're accidentally- awesome, but that's terrifying. but at the same time we're also aware that it has started to draw the ire of some of these conservative board members on things like the AAA that we can't prove it obviously but we've noticed a downturn in things like getting accepted to the AAA conference and that sort of thing so it's I I think there's also a level of the more well-known we become, the more of a target we're going to be. Oh, yeah. And I'm sort of okay with that. But of course, precarity is precarity at the same time. Like, I'm also still trying to get a permanent job. So I I think that's true, though, that Me Too Anthro has been gaining over the last few years it's kind of like become a go-to resource within, within anthropology. And I mean, you, I think, I think I've reached, I, did I message you on Twitter and give you evidence at some point? I, I think, I think so. Uh, I think it's when I was writing the sapiens piece. Yeah, maybe I, I, but like, yeah, a professor came to me and was like, this information needs to be public. Who can we give it to? And we're yes. Yep. And, and we we we, we publish as a collective. Yep. Yeah. So. And that's I mean for right now at least that's that's sort of the role that we see ourselves in is if we're big enough um, and we can use the Me Too Anthro Collective as that face, it has the power to you know, become an institution in in some respect, but we have to be careful with it that we don't become the institution. Do you know of an example of a similar situation happening, like maybe in another, even in another field or where there's kind of this insurgent group that takes a slightly adversarial role? Slightly. Not that I'm aware of, actually. Um, I, I think sociology is a, a, a bit too formal right now to, to actually pull off something like that. I mean, there there is definitely an element of this where I see some people kind of roll their eyes and it's sort of like, ugh, anthropologists. I, of course, it's a bunch of anthropologists. We're like, yes, of course it is. But not that I know of. Well, that makes me kind of excited to sort of think about that, that potential, but maybe I'll do a little research. And I, I also think the, the other nice thing about it is it's also the freedom for 
others that truthfully, if other people do want to get involved in the Me Too Anthro Collective, easily done, that it is a good way to, again, sort of enter into that collective umbrella where you do get to say and publish things anonymously in a sense, but not truly anonymously, but with a wall of names between you and whoever you're talking to. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. I had a quick question um, around where Me Too Anthro is now. And I know you've developed some incredible resources along Journey Home. I was wondering if you could talk us through um, how that was created, where it is now, how people can access it, what's it for? So everything um, everything that we have created, the first thing I'll say is all published open access on the metooanthro.org uh, website. So you can absolutely go there. Please feel free to download it, take it, use it. That's why we have it. But we have two, basically two separate sections. One is uh, the Long Journey Home Seminar, which is comprised of a faculty guide, a student guide, and a PowerPoint template. We also have a module for conferences. So basically how to engage in social justice and activism in the moment if something goes wrong specifically. But this set of resources honestly came out of a conversation that we had as a collective not that long ago that focused primarily on the one, I would say the one major problem that we were seeing in student activist spaces, which is that student activist spaces were primarily focused on awareness and not action. It was, there was so much out there about raising awareness, about being aware of what kinds of power abuses could happen, what kinds of sexual assault could happen, training for avoiding that kind of sexual assault. But there really wasn't anything in terms of actually calling for the people in power to do something about it. And that's where we wanted to put our strength behind is what can we do to actually enact action in this space and do something. And so the creation of those training guides was one part, here is our collective knowledge and the collective knowledge of the people that we work with, because it isn't just us in the collective at this point, but also this was our way of saying, we've done this tremendous amount of work to put this stuff together, take it and now do something. Like enact action in your departments, enact action in your universities and actually hold some of these people to account. We're gonna tell you how to do it. And so in a sense, it's almost to say, I don't want to hear an excuse about why you couldn't do all of this because it's all on the website. We we're showing you what to do. We've got answers to those questions. Now do it. Um, and you, you wouldn't be surprised. I, I don't think any of us here would be surprised, but I am still a little surprised at how hard it is to get anybody to actually enact these suggestions, to actually get the action going even once we've done all of the background work, like saying here, just take the stuff that you need and do it. And they still don't. Holly, I'm actually, I'm wondering yeah. if, if, if you've had conversations with other, like if anyone's reached out, what's the reception of this been like? 
I mean, we've actually had multiple universities reach out to us, um, not the university officially, but people in departments who do want to enact this kind of training. We've gotten contacted by admins, by professors, by other graduate students. And I think the hard part is they all sort of end up saying the same thing, which is, oh, my university doesn't have anything like this. And we've sort of been thinking about it for years, but didn't know where to start. Now we've got somewhere to start, but it's still an uphill battle for a lot of them just trying to get something implemented on a regular basis. Margaret, I might throw it to you if you could uh, speak to the the uphill battle. The uphill battle? Yeah. I mean... You know, what you're saying, I think, really resonates a lot with a lot of my experiences, a lot of activism um, on issues of sexual harassment and assault on campus, in my experience, sometimes do lack sort of a, a practical plan for how to get from A to Z. And that was one thing that I think we sort of focused on um, early on in our organizing, which kind of got started after the complaint. And then we linked up with the organizing that was happening through the Harvard Graduate Students Union. And through there, we, we sort of started to look at the university policies and sort of say, okay, we let's redesign these. Like, let's be the architects of this policy. And so we kind of, that was our way of sort of saying, we want to make real meaningful change, right? And we have this sort of lens into that. We know a lot about it because we were going through the complaint process at that time. So we just had this great wealth of knowledge. And there were other people who were part of those coalitions that were also working on it. And I think I think it was bringing people with different sort of experiences and expertise and priorities, right? And kind of getting them working together on a project that for us um, did create a lot of, I think, like the movement grew. I think we got, you know, we achieved certain things. um, But in the end, universities are, are entirely recalcitrant. And so you have to just, I mean, that's how we ended up at a lawsuit. You know, you just have to keep reaching for whatever lever is going to move this institution. I really love the way that you phrased um, that the uh, being wanting to be the architects of the policy and the policy changes. And Holly, what you were saying before about, you know, enacting change for so many graduate students, the idea of a a lawsuit on top of their studies in the face of the uphill battle that is, you know, the institution, um, I guess can seem incredibly um, intimidating and and insurmountable. Um, Margaret, I was wondering if you could speak to, in, in the activist space, the importance of connection and finding your your community yeah I mean I I could talk about that for a very long time because when when I started this complaint right I we were very the three of us and my the three plaintiffs and who are all the plaintiffs in this who filed complaints against John Kamara you know, we were, it was the three of us, we were not friends before this complaint. And so that was sort of the first sort of community that 
was created sort of, you know, accidentally by force because the university brought this complaint and we're the ones who agreed to do it. And so suddenly we were in this. And I think just right away in that we just committed to each other. We were scared. We didn't know what was going on. The whole process was so alienating. Um, we ended up having a press article, which is just a really like terrifying experience to go through. And through that whole process, like I think I might have, I might have died if I didn't have this, you know, these three people. I mean, there's actually like um, another professor who was also helping us out. And we were just in constant contact. Like we, we just committed to each other and caring for each other. And that where we, you know, checking in on each other every day, if someone is too tired, everyone else picks up the slack. And that was a very tight knit, I think almost unsustainable kind of deep like bond that we had. I That was how it started. But Something that I think is just really important about our story and what allowed us to be effective in this process and actually survive it for so long is how many groups we connected with. So pretty early on, the the women who had filed the Jorge Dominguez, who were covered in that um, that big piece that came out in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, a few of them reached out to us after we had our Chronicle of Higher Ed piece. And they just, you know, out of nowhere reached out to us and said, hey, we've been there. Would you like to meet? Let's talk about this. And we did meet with them and that changed everything for us. So we knew no one, right, who knew anything about this process, no one who had been through anything like this before. And here were these women, you know, different all different sorts of backgrounds. And, you know, some of them were lawyers now. So one of them was, you know, a professor. Um, and just, but what was really incredible about it is they, they gave us the information that we needed to navigate the institution more intelligently. So they knew, like they knew who to talk to. They knew that you had to demand your rights and you had to demand them in a certain way. And they, you know, so we didn't have that attitude before. We kind of had an attitude, uh, a pa more passive attitude, like, oh, the university is going to do this process. And once we met up with them, we became more active agents in the process of like advocating for ourselves, starting to think about complaining about things that weren't right in the process. But yeah, uh, they were they were a huge game changer for us. So that was one network we we connected with. And then later on, we connected with the Harvard Graduate Students Union and we just sort of merged our causes, right? There was an overlap there. They already had a whole movement about what was called real recourse at the time, but it had started about getting arbitration or better, better grievance procedures for sexual harassment. So we connected with them. And then through that union work, we really understood that our power was limited as graduate students. And so we kind of came up with this coalitional model, especially in, in the Harvard um, Graduate Student Union, there's the Feminist Working Group. And that's, I worked on that a lot. And that's the organization through which we sort of address the, um, the Title IX policies. And through that organization, 
we developed this. We're going, every project we do, we're going to reach out to other people or when other people are working on projects, we're going to develop relationships with them. And we just did simple things like reaching out to people or getting on each other's message threads. And slowly over time that created you know, share information sharing. We knew what was going on in each organization. We knew what they were doing. Uh, we shared resources and ideas and things like that. And then later on, um, the undergrads kind of took over the cause and they brought their own style to it. And it was just the seeing them so insistent. And, you know, it's really like you were saying, Holly, just like absolutely insisting that they knew they were right and that things needed to change. I think that was a really inspirational moment for me, right? It's kind of like the it could come full circle, right? We could almost exit now and it had been handed off. But those those networks, I mean, you know, I never felt particularly welcome in my department. Obviously, a lot of famous professors had publicly called me out, right? So they felt, I felt awkward in the university spaces, but these other groups emerged and became really supportive networks. We were working together all the time. We were organizing together all the time. Um, hanging out uh, in communication a lot. So it became ways of really having community and having a space where if something happened to you, you could come in, we would immediately care for you. We would immediately connect you with resources. And that was really empowering. Thank you so much for sharing that, Margaret. I, Holly, I wondered if you could speak a bit to, you hinted before about your experience being quite alienating, especially at, at the beginning of the process. And that obviously echoes with Margaret's story. Um, is there anything in your resources about how to go about what Margaret's talking about, you know, in terms of connecting, reaching out and creating these communities? To some degree, yes. Um, I mean, one of the driving principles that we really had, I would say, that we really started to focus on, um, and I think this is going to be something that that resonates with a lot of people, is recognizing that these institutions and, and sort of institutions broadly put the greatest onus of work on the least powerful. And so... The hard, one of the hardest things about coming into these kinds of spaces, if you yourself are a survivor, is that you are generally speaking in the least position of power. You've got the most to lose. You stand to lose the most if you do accuse, if you do get involved in this process. And ultimately, knowing that you're the one who's going to be giving up your time, you're the one who's going to be giving up your reputation, you're the one who's going to be giving up your focus on your work. And part of our, our take on this, drawing from feminist anthropology, is once again, as much as possible, making it clear in our materials that not only are we acknowledging that the onus of work is on the least powerful, but in some ways that that's sort of where you have to start yourself because you're going to start there anyway. And so knowing that I think at least to some degree helps in understanding that a lot of this is going to be tremendously unfair, that it's going to take away from your work. It's going to become a part-time or second full-time job in a sense 
that's unpaid. And this is sort of the paradox of a lot of feminist anthropology that I even note in my own work is I write and publish about Me Too anthropology, but that's not my ethnographic work. That's not what I do. Um, I'm sort of known for it more and more because I speak about it a lot, but that's not actually what my field work is about. And it's not what I write about academically. It's a whole sort of second world that I exist in, but only by virtue of the fact that I survived sexual assault in the field. And that's sometimes hard to reconcile for me. And I think that's sometimes hard to reconcile for a lot of survivors. And so the materials start in a lot of ways by saying, you're gonna come into this in a very isolated state and that isolated state might persist. And so what you are gonna need is community. What you're gonna need is to find others to connect with who can help you do this sort of thing. Don't individual bootstrap your way through any of this stuff because it's not gonna go well if you do. And to resist the messaging that this is how you have to do it. Because again, just I think exactly as Margaret was talking about, if that community hadn't been there, if those connections hadn't been possible, I don't think we'd be here. I, I don't think we would be at this point, either in terms of the Me Too Anthro Collective or in terms of the Harvard case. And so part of our the way that our materials work and part of the, the way that the Me Too Anthro Collective works in general is to try to front and center that idea that we are a collective, that this was produced by a collective. And that is a core element to what the material actually is, not just sort of a nice side part that we didn't all have to do the work individually, but rather we chose to do it specifically in this way because this material has to be collective. And if we are ever going to get the powerful and the institutions to act, it's never going to be individual. So I would say in, in a big way, this is a very long way of saying that that collectivity and that community is a core element of what the entire set of open access work that we produced ultimately was in the first place. I would like to follow up on that with a question for you, because this is something that I encountered early on in the process. We were doing so much work. It became my life. I had no time to work on any of my own work. It was completely consuming. And I'm I'm thinking of the uh, Moten and Harney in the under comments where they sort of say, this is what the university does with complaints. They your demand gets turned back around on you and it becomes labor that they, the okay. university then makes you do. And at some point in the process, I started asking myself, is this actually the right way to be organizing? Right? Even by critiquing and dissenting in the space of the university, you're, you're also serving the interests of the university, right? That's what universities do. And yeah, I'm just wondering if you guys have any thoughts on that that there is kind of a paradox here where it should be on the institution to reform itself. Yeah, I mean, obviously 
I think part of the hard part is exactly that paradox is the institution is not going to reform itself. Um, I mean, we would love it if it did, but I, I think we all know deep down in our, our heart of hearts that if you leave power to police itself, that is precisely what power will not do. Um, so I, I think the way that we tried as best as we could to handle it is that's why the Me Too Anthro Collective is multinational. So I, I think I am right now, I think I'm currently the only American in it. Uh, so I'm in a completely different time zone as everybody else. Uh, but we have members from Ireland and the UK, Australia, United States, et cetera, et cetera. And so part of it started to become that today's graduate students become, hopefully depending on how the academic job market works out, the faculty of tomorrow, in theory. And ultimately, if we want to change this institutional culture, that's gonna come by changing us. That if we're gonna be the future of this institution, then this is what we need to take into that institution because it is unlikely that the old guard, so to speak, is reformable. And I think that's sometimes hard for people to take. Um, when I wrote the Sapiens piece, for example, about the leveraging of these power networks, uh, because I specifically talked in that piece about how quickly he was able to leverage these, these academic patronage and prestige networks, how quickly these petitions in his favor came out in a way that and, and really like this, this infuriates me so much that we feel that anthropology should know better. And I think that was part of why that felt like such a slap in the face is we were looking at these petitions and looking at the names on these petitions and these were not small names on these petitions. And to think you should have known better, but you didn't. And that tells us something about the state, not just of academic anthropology, but of academia in general. I don't think, and, and this sounds somewhat pessimistic, I do not think that is reformable. I think it can be held to account eventually um, as Margaret is attempting to do through the legal system. But in the end, I think if we are going to make legitimate change in the way that these power structures work, we're starting with ourselves in the end. And I do think there is a, something that has to happen, right? Because the longer you're in the institution, the higher up you go, I feel it, it will consume you, right? You will become a part of it. It happens to everyone. It happened to Paul Farmer. Right? <laughs> it, it will. That's just the nature of how, how those mechanisms work. And so I sort of feel like it is our job as junior scholars to hold our elder uh, scholars up up to the standards of their ideals, the work that they did, right, when they were younger and the earlier things and continue to call them out on this. And, you know, the perversity is, you, the more powerful you become, the more risky it is to challenge your, 
professor. So, uh, yeah, but that so it's kind of happening on both levels, though. The in order to create a new generation of leadership, I think that doesn't forget that doesn't right. That's the lesson. Like all of the people who signed that letter were once once should have seen this right and then they didn't and that sort of process requires that there's a tension between these two groups which have incredibly disparate power in those situations yeah i think you're absolutely right and and i think there's also something for a lot of us that's a little scary about that is that particularly with growing precarity you're either forced out of the academy because you can't get a job or you can't be precarious for the amount of time that it takes, or you eventually end up your own worst enemy. Uh, because we're all trying to stay within this institution because we do believe in the work that we do, because we, we do believe that we can do good with it. We wouldn't be here if we didn't. And at the same time, I'm thinking, is that gonna be me? You know, am, am I gonna turn into the faculty member who doesn't see what's going on and signs the petition in support of the abuser. You know, how is that, how is that possible? How do I reconcile that? But no one ever said this was gonna be easy. And I think it can be done, but we have to do it together. That no single individual is ever gonna be able to hold themselves to account. We're gonna be holding each other to account. Yeah, I mean, that's a, form of caring for our disciplines and our institutions, right, is to actually hold people accountable. When I was a graduate student, uh, which was not that long ago, it was only a few years ago, but when I was a graduate student, I went to uh, a dissertation proposal defense of a PhD student who was a couple of years ahead of me. And I remember one of the things that he said just has stuck with me forever and it will stick with me forever um, in that he was from India and what he was proposing was doing field work in India as well. And so his entire dissertation proposal was about how it wasn't the same thing as him going home. He had to justify doing field work in India as an Indian anthropologist in a way that framed his entire project as why am I not going home? And all I remember that I was thinking the entire time I was sitting there, it was, so what if you are? That That's fine. So what if you are gonna have access to your family and your kin networks and support and familiar places? And like, why is that bad? But it was such a stark reminder to me that I was not giving a dissertation proposal to stay in the United States. In fact, nobody was. And so why not? Why were we not being anthropologists of the United States? Why did we have to leave? And the ultimate answer to that question is that exact trope. It was we had to go through this rite of passage and that's what it is. It is a harrowing rite of passage where we had to go into the far off exotic place that was unfamiliar 
in order to become real anthropologists. So yes, absolutely. That, that stereotype is alive and well. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, do you have thoughts on that? So I did my, my PhD thesis was uh, ethnography at home. I didn't go off to the exotic <laughs> land. Um, so I identify as a witch and I studied witches living and practicing in Australia. I was not initially connected to this network, so they weren't my, um, they weren't my peers, but, uh, wherever I traveled, uh, I was supported because I had family or friends close by. I was, you know, an hour or so's plane ride away from going back home. If something did go wrong, I was not, uh, geographically or socially isolated. Um, and I experienced some interesting responses to that in my anthropology department um, from support and um, interest because it was, you know, a little bit of a, a, a wacky topic uh, for some of them. Um, um, and for others, you know, it wasn't real ethnography because I was going home in between those trips and because I wasn't, you know, away from my friends and family for, you know, two years at a time. So, yeah, I've definitely had some interesting uh, imposter, not good enough anthropologist uh, symptoms, which I would have had anyway as, a, as an anthropologist from Australia and disconnected from, you know, Europe and 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 the states where you've got wonderfully huge anthropology departments and and peers to have. Um, I spent a lot of my time with uh, sociologists, historians, and social psychologists because our uh, anthropology department was quite small and still is, I think, quite small. And I just I didn't have uh, those immediate anthropology peers around me. But I created my community. I created that community of care, and I'm still in touch with. Uh, quite a few of them and they're incredibly important to me now as they were then. Um, Margaret, you I, I saw you mentioned before that you also did your uh, ethnography at home. Yeah, and I just have to say, I think it's uh, amazing. So you identify as a witch and you studied witches at home. It's, you know, that's the inverse of Evans Pritchard in a way. Uh, but I also study, I study in the US. I I do medical anthropology mostly. And so I was originally looking at this giant, big global burden of disease study, which has sort of these taking, it's collecting data from all over the world. And um, it has some collaborations in different places of the world. And I was originally going to look at those. And I did field work in Kampala in Uganda for one summer. And I just, I just had the experience, the visceral experience that I felt like the voyeur, right? That this felt like a colonial relationship. I, it felt very uncomfortable for me. I could work alongside them if we were to collaborate and produce knowledge. Um, when I was at Macquarie for a little bit, you know, I was a student with those scholars. They're they're brilliant. Um, it was that was like a really great project. But even writing about them in that collaborative space still felt like I was extracting something from them. Like that's why I was there, right? That I was I was always going to be able to capture something out of this and turn it into something um, 
that was valuable to me, that enriched me. And so I, I decided I was, I was going to study the people who were in the U.S., who the, the center of the Institute. And that was, yeah, I had to fight for that because my advisor told me, you won't get a job. You need an area studies focus. Um, yeah. And I think for me, I'd be curious to hear what, how you kind of got over it. At some point, I just had an ethical stance where I was like, I'm okay with doing this. I can go into other fields because I do more STSC stuff. So I was sort of like this, I think this is ethically, I stand behind my decision here. But I'm I'm wondering if you had any sort of way of, of sort of justifying it or or committing to it. Yeah, I think the way I committed to it was changing supervisors halfway through. Um, that's in, an incredibly um, stressful um process to go through so I don't recommend it unless it's completely necessary but that helps um I've always sort of been a people pleaser eldest daughter in a um biracial family I was sort of the second mum, so I've always you know tried to please and help others and that's been reflected through my uh academic career up until that point but I just hit a breaking point in my PhD where I was like you know what I've trusted my gut for previous projects where people have sort of gone, oh, that's a little bit, you know, weird or, you know, why why do you want to go to New Orleans and study voodoo priestesses for your honours project? Like we're all just staying home and doing, you know, a project here that's, you know, manageable. And I'm like, that's nice. I want to go do this thing. Um, and that, that, that paid off. I had an incredible experience, completely transformative. Um, and yeah, it just came to a point where I just started to trust myself um, and my instincts, even even if it was going against what my advisors were sort of telling me to do. I also think, um, and you, you can both correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm seeing this a lot in the Australian universities where uh, faculties are no longer these sort of um, strict boundaries. Like I work in the Faculty of Information Technology I don't, I, I very rarely have anything to do with our anthropology department here at Monash, even though they are incredible human beings. I, I hang around uh, SDS scholars and designers and political economists uh, and computer scientists. So I think uh, one of the ways to sort of break down this hold the, the lone anthropological wolf trope has on us is to start working and playing well with others. And that's that's what I see in the lab that I work in. Um, the director is an anthropologist, the incredible Sarah Pink. Um, and I think she's one of the like few examples I've seen of someone who reaching those upper echelons of the university and not being changed by those power structures. She actually works really hard to protect junior scholars from uh, the stresses of of the bureaucracy um, and and actively creates a community of collaboration and connection rather than competition amongst early career researchers. And given the precarious job market, given the grants that we're all going for, it could very easily turn into the opposite, uh, but it's not. And I know, Margaret, I've talked to you about the the ET lab before and how amazing it is and maybe I've got rose-colored glasses I don't know um 
but I think that she's she's onto something there um, in bringing all of these different you know characters and and expertise together to sort of go okay you're all amazing steps back see what you can create I think the lesson I'm taking from your advisor is that more anthropologists need labs absolutely absolutely um I love I think that's one of the things that initially attracted me to this lab was the work that we do uh, with with industry partners and with other not just other universities or other departments but directly working with with industry members it's so much fun it's inc- it's applied it's tangible we still do you know our social theory and our academic work together for sure but um there's something about that mix that makes it really grounded and really refreshing uh compared to some of the other departments I've worked in in the past I don't know if either of you have any um reflections or or similar experiences so on so in the the US we often refer to that as and I they probably call it the same thing it's called the anthropology and model um where it's about linking exactly as you sort of set out it's about linking anthropologists with other disciplines, basically. Um, And I've seen a sort of mixed response to it. And it sort of depends on, it's something of a generational thing, I think, but I, I think it's also part of the product of precarity that a lot of anthro departments themselves aren't hiring. Like they're, they're not replacing their retirement tenure track lines they're not replacing their permanent faculty and so anthropologists are also by virtue of that ending up in other places which I have no problem with I think that we should be I I think anthropology should be in these spaces Um, but I think there's also to some degree a, a fear that if you lose the core of academic anthropology anthropology itself stops or it stagnates in a way that turns anthropology into the handmaiden of neoliberalism rather than the handmaiden of colonialism. And so I I see, I, I can see the arguments on both ends of it, but at the same time, I think it, it circles nicely back to exactly what we've been talking about, which is the structures in power need to be the ones to do something about that if they want that to change, because there's absolutely nothing we as junior scholars can do about it. Yeah, no, and it just has that other effect for someone like, you know, me or you who've done a complaint and you're kind of, you're feeling alone and you're scared. Like I pissed off a very famous person. I don't know who my friends are, right? And so it's nice, yeah, yeah kind of have a... A place, right, that you can rely on for for at least some. <laughs> if if nothing else, I mean that again. That that's sort of been our hope is, even among, I would say, kind of grassroots activist organizations, there some are better than others. Certainly, um, like for example, we put out a statement actually not that long ago that we don't pair with Me Too STEM because the leader of Me Too STEM is absolutely a white supremacist. As as in she is four white women, two white women, and only white women. 
So we get a lot of questions in our email inbox, like, hey, are you affiliated with Me Too STEM? And if so, I don't ever want to talk to you. It's, it's like, no, nope, we're not. We never have been. We're aware of the racial problem that they've got going on and we're not affiliated with them. But at the same time, it's exactly like you were saying, like, how do you know who your friends are? You think they're going to be your friends and then they're white supremacists. Right. And then it's like, oops, white supremacy. Uh, Okay. Well, sign up for this. (laughs) So much for that one, I guess. Uh, Now, the the only other organization that we've ever done any sort of affiliate work with um, is called the Fieldwork Initiative. Oh, yeah. Because the, the Fieldwork Initiative is... I think I saw this. I was just going through this whole thing with all the work on the um, on assault in the field or danger in the field, those kinds of things. Yep. Um, because uh, Jerrica Heinz runs that one. Uh, but they specifically are a, a front-facing crisis group. Yeah. Like they're, they do very different work than we do, um, which is why we pair very well with them. So they tend to do things like something is going wrong while you are alone on field work, who do you call right now in a crisis? Like that's that's sort of more their work than ours. Well, that's gotta be a hard gig in anthropology, seriously. Oh, it's, they, they have my absolute respect. Like, dear God. Emma, I just, this is a question I'm dying, I've been dying to ask you since I started reading your thing. Um, but it's whether you have, whether the witch the witch stuff that you study and I'm in my head thinking of like the witch trials because that's like the big event that I know like the Salem witch trials in the U.S. but you know um I I wonder if that comparative lens and like what's happening with me too if you've had any like practical or organizing insights right about things that might work or I just wonder if that's been productive in that sense um unfortunately not in terms of organizing um but that I want that to be a part of the longer project so Holly for your background um this um the the witch project we're talking about is my monograph um Mm -hmm. and the project has changed shifted somewhat since we've met Margaret because I have an editor who is very interested in the project which is super exciting yeah yeah it's um it's been at to external review it's had like lots of um really wonderful feedback um but the project has broadened so originally it was going to be looking at sexual harassment and assault through the lens of witch hunts um as it occurs in the academy as like really specifically looking at anthropology for obvious reasons like this is something we're all intimate with or interested in and we know the research that is is out there and is emerging um for this project, they suggested that I actually broaden that out to look at a series of case studies. So higher education is going to be one of the case studies I look at, but I'll also be Mm -hmm. looking at the witch hunt trope being used in politics um, and also in media. We're going to be looking at across those sort of three areas, two case studies piece, um, I'm actually working on the introduction for that book at the moment, um, which I'm happy to share the draft if you're interested, um, looking yeah. at just breaking down the witch hunt trope, how it's been used as a political metaphor, 
um, McCarthy, Stalin, that kind of um, area. Uh, they'll also be touching on historic witch hunts. Um, so uh, parts of Europe, also Salem, which is kind of historic. It's a broad period, so I've got to figure out how mm-hmm. I'm going to balance that. But also uh, contemporary ongoing witch hunts, India, Papua New Guinea, parts of India, parts of mm-hmm. Africa. Um, so that's sort of how I'm structuring it. Um, so I haven't got the practical, um, like applied how to, you know, take these pieces. Cause that's going to be the conclusion will be the, so what, what's next practical steps. Kind <laughs> right. Of. It sounds like a massive project though. It does. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. It's going to be sort of the <laughs> like next... all of history and everything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm trying to keep it on the briefer side of things. So I'm not going to do a deep dive into historic witch hunts, into contemporary witch hunts, because they are their own areas of study. Um, right. But I yeah. think it's really important to contextualize for the reader um, who you who hear the witch hunt metaphor being used to describe, you know, you know, these feminist me too mobs are coming up they're hysterical and passionate and they're coming after you know Mm -hmm. these incredible men and they're ruining their reputations to contextualize that claim within the broader sort of you know winch witch hunt picture um that's super important to me and how I do it how I write it in a way that's you know authentic and has my voice in it has my story um is is going to be you know the next year two years of my life <laughs> right um it's not part of my like the projects that I do like like you were saying before Holly like so often these things aren't actually related right. to like I research technology one of the things that does not escape me is that my my article for um the journal of feminist anthropology which is called um the things we believe is way more cited than like my actual <laughs> It's like the most popular article I have written to date is the one article that is not about my actual research. Right. It's, yeah. It's like, that figures. Yeah, of course. (laughs) It's like, of course, of course, it's that one. uh, Yeah, I mean, some of it, I feel like Anthro has so many lenses on things like ready to go that could be so useful to helping us understand the contemporary moment. Right. If a plus, I really like that you're kind of doing that, right? You're doing anthropology, but you're studying the contemporary moment and your space and you're taking witchcraft. I mean, of course, there's going to be a thousand insights from that. It's fascinating. I love it. And I don't know why I never thought of that before. I'm really ashamed, but I was like, this is a totally novel idea. (laughs) Well, it's... It's taken me, you know, a while to like my project has shifted and changed so much from its original. Like it was going to be very much focused on my Australian based ethnography. And now it's a, this total other thing. But I can see it having like broader reaching like a, like application in my career because I study technology and society, but I do so from a very gender power lens. So mm-hmm. I want to set up kind of a theoretical framework for doing that in this book. And I'll, the way I've got it set up is going through the sort of the key stages of the trial. So gossip and suspicion is kind of part one. And then the second stage is accusation. And then the third is the trial. So 
there's obviously a lot more other stages and other people have different cycles for explaining, you know, the different steps um, of, a, of a witch hunt. But I'm writing this as like an academic trade book. So okay. it's not, it's not going to be, Great. yeah, I want it to be, I want it to be picked up by like the Me Too SDS people. And I want them to be able to use the practical guide and examples through it and be like, yes, this also applies to us. And this is how we're going to use it. And when people, mm-hmm. you know, who have been accused, you know, start talking about, you know, them being the victims of a witch hunt, we have this, you know, thick resource to <laughs> refer to why that is not okay at <laughs> length. <laughs> That's what I'm just sort of thinking. Like you can just imagine a piece like that kind of spurring more even like popular pieces because that trope is so powerful. It's so powerful. Actually, I, someone was has trolled my Twitter for a long time and they have jumped back and forth all the time between calling me the witch and the witch hunter. And even in like this- Oh my God. People conflate it. And I'm like, there's something going on there <laughs> that they're not actually sure which one I am. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> This this will be a, another conversation, but I would love to do like a bit of a digital ethnography of those tweets because the 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 quest like this is something the reviewers kept asking you know to clarify like who is the witch who is the hunter and I was like you can't actually nail down in any you know definite form who is the oh. witch and who is the hunter it's so fluid it's always in flux wow oh I thought the answer was going to be it's me <laughs> always <with> me. <laughs> Oh no, that's so fascinating. Oh, that could be really good. So I will... I'm so excited to read it. Yeah, send me I... anything. Yeah, I'll it. I'll keep you updated on the on the project as things happen because I think like I would love to link it to the the Me Too Anthro collective of readers. Yeah, I was about to say, like, if you have any open access version of it, like let us know. We'll put it on the resources page. Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll obviously also do like um articles and things out of it to kind of promote it as well and I'll do distilled versions of key points and things like that and the guide you know that I create at the end um but yeah I would love to once me to enter is back from summer um uh, to... <laughs> I was gonna say yeah we 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 all had a during our last little sort of this is going to amuse you and, and I'll mention it um since you're writing about witchcraft the the core group of Me Too of the Me Too Anthro Collective refers to ourselves as the Coven. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> we we always have like that's just what we're called. So our our thing um, is called Coven Chat. So whenever we do Coven Chat, like that's that's what it. Because I was about to say I'm like so last time we did Coven Chat and then I realized I'm like oh I should explain what that is. Oh. Um, so. Yes, the, the Me Too Anthro Collective core group is referred to as the Coven Amazing. for exactly that reason, like yeah. because it was all about witch hunts and so on and so forth. Speaking of things junior scholars can do, uh, I was wondering if <laughs> either of you had any um, either self-care or community care practices that you yourself enact um either on a daily weekly or monthly basis um that help you as part of your your anthropological practice that's it's a strangely hard question um i i think for me most specifically 
the best thing that I instituted at the time of getting involved in the Me Too Anthro Collective, uh, which is something that I still do, is that the, the Me Too Anthro Collective made it a big point that we, I mean, obviously we meet virtually because we're in half a dozen different countries, so we can't actually, you know, go to a pub together or anything, but was to actually set aside time to meet and talk and not talk about anything involving our activist work. That we had times for, we're gonna work on these projects, we're gonna work on this activism, we're gonna work on our tasks and our deadlines. But then we also actually set aside time for, let's just hang out. Like, let's just turn on Zoom and we'll have a, a remote, writing getaway where we talk about nonsense. And honestly, it pandemic, you know, certainly didn't help with that. But at the same time, it actually ended up being really helpful was just having time to not have to talk about that or not have to do it with the people that I had formed these these relationships with. Oh. I would have to say I mean, I think one thing for me, which is probably not going to apply to other people, uh, but I, I have enjoyed spending time around my nieces and nephews and allowing myself to kind of get into that mindset and on their level and play and like explore the way they see the world. And I've just found that endlessly rewarding I do it changes my perspective on the world every time or I feel different every time so that's something I've enjoyed um but of course if you have kids that dynamic changes so that's very limited um but the only the other thing I would say that I allow myself to do a lot is is I allow myself to read my favorite like these beautiful works that I love so James Baldwin or Audre Lorde like these pieces that enrich me and inspire me I'll take like a whole day and I'll just pull them all out and set them on the table and I'll just go through and I have my highlights and I'll read all my favorite quotes and everything. And for me, it's just like, it's beautiful and it's feeding me and it's, you know, a lot of them have these wonderful social justice perspectives and I kind of like write some poetry. I just allow myself to just completely play with these little pieces that I uh, really love. And I always feel inspired coming out of that too. So, but you know, that is academic, you know, you're still reading and stuff. So. Brilliant. Thank you both for sharing. And in the spirit of sharing, I will also share mine. I think I'm similar to you, Margaret. I like to have one that is very um, play-based and not uh, writing or reading or, or, you know, kind of getting into that cognitive space. So I do gymnastics um, a few times, uh, a week. Um, so I like stand on my hands or I tumble through the air or I'm running around and it's a big group of people. They're all different ages, sizes. Um, and they all have vastly different jobs. We don't talk about our jobs, but I'm not surrounded by, you know, academics, um, for those few hours and getting into that play space where we're really silly um, and ridiculous and laughing and joyful, that has been incredible to me. It's something that I really missed during lockdown. Um, I really like the idea of immersing yourself into the writers and the thinkers 
and connecting with those voices. I think something that stuck out to me was a um, a conversation I went along to by um, a Australian comedian, Amir Rahman, and Akala, who is a poet, activist, rapper, academic, historian, incredible individual. Um, and I went along to this conversation and I realized uh, for the first time, I think in my entire uh, 28 years up until that point, I think I was 28 at the time. Um, I had never been in a room full of brown and black people. I had always been surrounded by and or been the like very much the minority. And it was really unfamiliar. It was really uncomfortable um, to have that realization that, you know, it had taken me that long <laughs> to to be in that situation. And I remember something they said at the end when someone asked, you know, what do we do on the days where, you know, you know, we've been, you know, dealing with a bunch of microaggressions all day and we're just exhausted and we're home and we, you know, what what can we do? And they said to, I'm paraphrasing here, but to wrap yourself in the either authors or artists or singers who who speak to that part of yourself. So um, at the time I was only listening to really, you know, pop music, but I really started to delve into musicians from, um brown and black heritage, Aboriginal. Uh, there's a lot of really incredible Desi artists that I now, you know, follow and 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 very up to date in all of their work. So immersing myself into that world on, you know, often for maybe not a whole day. <laughs> um, but um definitely on the definitely on the weekends. Um that's something I like to do. But yeah, thank you so much. Um both of you for for joining me and for sharing all of this. This has been an incredible conversation. Um, Holly, I wanted to ask if people want to, I know you mentioned the website and its resources, but if people want to be involved in the Me Too Collective, how can they uh, connect with you guys? So right now, the the core of the Me Too Anthro Collective is on a temporary hiatus right now. Like we're all kind of taking the summer off. Um, so I would say don't contact us right now. But um, I would say if you have something in particular that you're interested in getting involved with, uh, we have a standard email that you can email, uh, which is on our website. It's metooanthro at gmail.com. Or you can always email me. Uh, I'm probably the one who's most responsive at the moment because I'm uh, the one who's most currently involved. And my email, I think, is also on the website. Uh, so probably email. Just, I would say, give us a little bit of summer leeway since things are, we're, we're, we're trying to take just, just a little bit of a, a break. Absolutely. In the spirit of not, uh, you know, what, exactly what we've been talking about for this whole conversation of the amount of labor that goes into this work, I think, like we said at the very, very start, I think we were not recording at the time, but rest is productive and taking periods yes. of rest is necessary. And yes, wonderful. All right. Well, I just want to thank you both so much for joining me. I'm so glad that uh, we could we could all get together and have this conversation. And also massive congratulations to you, Margaret, for submitting your PhD. Thank yes. you. So much. Thank you. And thank you for having me on. This was great. It's great to talk to you as well, Holly. And you too. It's nice to meet you virtually. Yeah. <laughs>
That was it. Me, Holly Walters and Margaret Schewinski. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Exchange with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts at this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabrow. Special thanks to Nick Fairley, Will Grant, Martin Pierce and Mild Rowe. Our podcast executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Fung. Thank you for listening. Until next time, keep talking strange.